As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for another loaded episode. Bruce, we're going to talk to our good friend and frequent guest of the Audible, Tim Brando, uh, in a little bit uh, on a whole variety of subjects related to our current state of events here and how they connect to college athletics. Uh, But a couple stories we want to hit on first. Uh, Our friend Brett McMurphy did a survey on Stadium about playoff expansion, and the results were, frankly, a little bit surprising. Um, He talked to 112 of the 130 ADs in the FBS. 88% of the athletic directors want an 18 playoff when the current contract ends in 2025. If I had guessed beforehand, like, what would you, I mean, I know the whole group of five was going to say yes, they want it, right? So there's 50% right there. But would you have guessed 88% overall? I would have probably guessed seventy percent. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed eighty-eight. Now, one thing I wonder about is there is going to be there are already people who are money hungry. They're going to know coming out of a pandemic. I think that probably does up it quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, for sure, if you're anticipating some financial hits over the next couple of years, the idea of of expanding and getting a monstrous uh, paycheck. Um, maybe maybe changing people's minds even in the current thing. But what it tells me most of all is there's one conference, the SEC, that has no interest in an 18 playoff, at least the last time we asked them about it. I th- would have thought that, that the other conferences were more split on it. Now, we don't know out of those one, like who are the 18 missing ADs here? I don't know. But um, that tells me at this point it's the SEC against everybody else. The SEC wants the status quo. But I would guess at this point, most of the Pac-12, Big Ten, Big 12, and ACC want to see it expanded. And so that means uh, when the discussions come up, the SEC is going to have to decide, are they really going to try to fight this kind of one-man fight against the other nine conferences in Notre Dame? Actually, I can't say that. I don't know where Notre Dame's AD is on that. Uh, but or, or are they just going to say, okay, you guys, this is what you want. We'll go along with it. By the way, this just means we're going to put more teams in the playoff and keep winning national championships. So, you know, 
be careful what you wish for. That, that'll be interesting to see. Well, they need the money. They're going to need the money. And I think that is going to further drive discussions and drive decisions. So I think that's where that could be headed. And then we got some Vegas win totals for the season this week from various different outlets. The one I'm, I'm using is from Bet Online. Uh, season win totals for every team in the country. Um, we both reviewed them. Why don't we just pick, uh, let's say, who are your, th- of all those win totals, who are the three that if I, you had to place a bet right now, you're like, these are the three I want? The first one is going to be so in the weeds, but <laughs> I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, Texas State is at three and a half. This is in the weeds. This is in the weeds. All right. Do you know who Brady McBride is? No idea. Okay. Brady McBride was behind Brady White at Memphis. He is a quarterback who everybody in, in San Marcos is very excited about. He transferred there last year. Uh, I think Jake Spavadol's had a lot of success with with quarterbacks in his time, um, and I, from my understanding, Brady McBride should should light people up. Now their schedule, I actually looked at it because I figured, hey, if we're going to talk about it, their non conference schedule is not easy, um, but they do get UTSA, who is rebuilding. They have to go to ULM, who's a team they probably should beat. I think they would beat. They have New Mexico State. That's a team that they should beat, I think. That's also, though, on the road, as well as South Alabama, who was really bad last year. But that's also on the road. But I think with the addition of Brady McBride, I think they will win a lot more than three and a half games. All right. Well, that's a that's a real insider tip there. So if we have some true degenerate gamblers listening I think that, that some of them are going to take you up on that. Mine's a little more obvious, my first one, and that is Oklahoma okay. nine and a half. Lincoln Riley has gone eleven and one each of his first three regular seasons. You're saying this is is this the year they go nine and three? I don't see why. And let you could say, oh, what if Spencer? What if it turns out Spencer Rattler's not up to the to the challenge of being Oklahoma's next quarterback? Well, with Lincoln Riley's track record at this point, I think he's going to have him ready to play. He doesn't need to be Heisman caliber quarterback i think that he's got really good running backs he's got really good receivers most of the offensive lines back and i think the defense will be better even though they lose obviously um they lose some really good yeah they lose kenneth murray they lose some really good players but they lose neville gallimore Uh, here's what you know i looked at that too and that one stood out at me that was one of my would have been one of my three picks uh, the non-conference schedule, Missouri State, should cruise by them. They have te- Tennessee, who we think will be better, but that Tennessee game is is at home, and then they go to Army. Uh, you know, looking at the rest of the Big 12, I mean, I still think, again, and I, the people I talk to on the OU staff feel very good about Spencer Rattler and where he's, you know, how far he's come. Now, they did, again, they did lose some... It's not like they had a ton of talent on defense. They were really bad in the secondary, and they lost their their biggest difference makers in the front seven, and they lose C.D. Lamb. But, again, I, I'm with you on, on Lincoln Riley and how the schedule sets up. I mean, if, if it was 10.5, I would feel differently. It's not, though. Right. My next one would be uh, going, taking the under on Mississippi State 6.5. I, I do like K.J. Costello. I think that was a big get. But, um, you know, we mentioned it briefly on with Tim, Mike Leach's unfortunate tweet with the image of the woman knitting a noose. It caused one player to transfer already. 
I think this and the is, se- and a second is actually transfer is transferring too. We don't know if that player who's an offensive lineman is has said he was leaving because of that or just the timing was such. I think the way this is this season is being affected is just the worst scenario for first year coaches because they're not getting any you know in in FaceTime FaceTime they're not getting any in person time with their players right now. Mike Leach is holed up in Key West. Just putting them way behind the eight ball. Now you've got this issue that's going to just going to linger until he finally can reunite with them. Um, it's not like they were loaded talent-wise beforehand. I just think it could be a real brutal first season there for Mike Leach. So under six and a half for me. My next one is also an under, and it's a coach I have a ton of respect for, but I know he lost more, probably a higher percentage of, of production than, than just about anybody, and that's Utah at eight and a half I look at the under for them now they don't have to play Oregon in the not you know in the other division but they do have to play Washington that's not easy they're non-conference obviously they play BYU uh, Montana State they should win at Wyoming I think they'll win but to me I just think they lost so much I think it's going to be hard to get over eight and a half I could see them uh, maybe getting eight wins but I think that one stood out to me a little bit. Yeah, I definitely think they're taking a step back. I considered it. I want to because I have faith in Kyle Whittingham. I wasn't necessarily ready to say, "Oh, they're going to be bad." They're not going to be. They're going to take a huge step back. But I could definitely see um, the rationale behind that. Um, for this third one, I'm actually surprised you didn't say it first. Cal six and a half. Yeah, that's that was my next yep, one. Yep, actually. yep. Uh, I think we're both very bullish on them. Um, they they now have a competent offense that I think could be even better um, with their quarterback they have. They do lose some some key guys on that defense that's been very good for three straight seasons now. But we're talking you know Pac-12 North where Washington and Washington State have coaching changes. We do obviously think Oregon will be very strong. Um, I think Oregon State is improving. I, I just think Stanford, we don't know what's going to happen with them. I think Cal is headed toward a more like an eight or nine win season than a than a six win season. Yeah, I'm with you. We do, our crew did that had them in the bowl game. They looked pretty good when Chase Garbers was healthy and 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 was able to finish games. They were a really good team last year. They really struggled when he wasn't in there. He was a sophomore last year. Christopher Brown, their big running back, he's back. Their best receivers are back. Everybody on the offense was basically a sophomore last year. Now Musgrave will come in and and take over. I think he will. Uh, I think he'll be a good fit. You're, they did lose Evan Weaver and they lost Ashton Davis in the middle of the defense, but they still have a lot of talent in the secondary. Zionde Johnson's a difference maker on the D line. He was the defensive MVP in that bowl game. He's back. And just looking at their schedule, you know they, they do have to play TCU, but it's it's at home. UNLV they should handle. Cal Poly they should certainly handle. And then, as you mentioned, you know, we we had the game where they played Oregon at Autzen. They gave the Ducks a, a handful. They were, I think, leading the game at half. That game is in Berkeley this year. They have Washington at home. They have Stanford at home. They get UCLA at home. I really, you know, I'm with you. I think they have a chance to win nine games, maybe even ten games this year. Real quick, I just want to bring up the one that I found the most fascinating. I, I'm, I don't know which way to go on it. But when, it, when I first looked at it, Georgia Tech, two and a half. 
I'm like, are you kidding me? I know they were bad last year, but you don't have any little faith in Jeff Collins. He can't go at least three and nine like that without looking at the schedule. I'm like, that's a no brainer. Then I looked at the schedule. Can I just read you the front end and back end of the schedule? Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. They open with Clemson. They then play Gardner Webb. There's one of the wins. Then they play UCF. And then they're at North Carolina and at Virginia Tech. So there's a possible one and four start. Then it gets a little easier, but the last few games are Notre Dame, Miami, at Georgia. So now I'm not sure I can do that. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, they may play 11 bowl teams. I mean, I'm, that's a, if I looked at it, let's take Gardner-Webb, who's obviously not an FBS program, out of it. Um, well, I'm, the the teams the teams that probably have the least chance of going to a bowl game, looking at their schedule, is at Syracuse and Duke, right? And Syracuse was good to you know was good the year before last. Duke hasn't been awful under David Cutcliffe. Those are the two worst teams they're going to play in FBS. So I could see they're going to have to upset some people just to get to three wins. I still have faith in Jeff Collins he can get to three wins, but now after looking at the schedule, not enough faith to, to lay money on it. Um, let's get to some mailbag questions real quick. Back to the podcast in a minute after this message from DoorDash. There are thousands of restaurants open for delivery on DoorDash that need your patronage now more than ever. Support your favorite restaurants on DoorDash. You've counted on restaurants, now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. Many of your local favorite restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. DoorDash deliveries are now contactless to keep communities we operate in safe. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month when you download the DoorDash app and enter code Audible. That's five dollars off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code Audible. Don't forget that's code Audible for five dollars off your first order with DoorDash. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Remember last week, Bruce, we had a question that asked us to name basically our top 10 coaches since we started covering the sport. Yes. Uh, we got a lot of angry emails because of a guy that neither of us even mentioned. And I, I got to say, I, I agree with the people. We we had Bill Snyder on there, but we didn't even address the possibility of Frank Beamer. Yeah, apologies to Frank Beamer and everybody at Virginia Tech. I think that's that is a very fair criticism and you know, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He obviously was best known for special teams. The program really ele- continued to elevate. I mean, he was one of those guys. I mean, shoot, I did a cover story on ESPN magazine basically about when Michael Vick took over and they they became a national brand. Um I mean, in retrospect, who would you have bumped out of your top 10 there? Well, I don't remember my whole top 10. Um, But just here's the comparison from Jamie Houston. Uh, And by the way, I had a question in my written mailbag this week, best coaches since 2000 not to win a national title. And and I immediately thought of Frank Beamer. I'm not sure why I didn't think of him last week. If we go back to the mid-90s when Bruce started, Bill Snyder, six top 10 finishes, 
six New Year's Day, New Year's six bowl appearances, two conference titles, but he also had three losing seasons. Frank Beamer, it's during the same time span, six top ten finishes, ten New Year's six bowls, seven conference championships, and played in the national title game in 1999, zero losing seasons. I think when I talk about Bill Snyder, I, I so much of it is about where Kansas State was as a program where they basically were on the doorstep of not being a Division One program at all. You know, Virginia Tech, obviously Frank Beamer did things there that they'd never done before, but it wasn't quite as dire. But I would agree, during the time I was covering the sport, if you don't all go all the way back to the beginning of Snyder's tenure, Beamer was as impressive, if not more. Yeah, I think what I kind of, maybe the distinction I made, and maybe it's nitpicking, but like, I felt like Snyder had a lot of seasons in the top 10 and around the top five, whereas as great as Frank Beamer was, there were really two years that stood out, and it was the Michael Vick years, right, where they were, I think, two, and they lost to Florida State, and then they were somewhere, I think, around five. And then after that, it kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, went back to, you know, 12, 15, 14, that kind of stuff. Great coach. That was the maybe the hair splitting part, but I think I would still be inclined to go to lean to Bill Snyder on that just from looking at, at the records. And as you said, from where they came from in terms of Kansas State as a brand, whereas uh, Virginia Tech, you know, Bill Dooley was a, was still a, a, had some success there before that. Here's an interesting one from Will Darcy in Chicago. Hi, Stu and Bruce. Big fan of the podcast. If you had to show a non-college football fan one game to show them what college football is all about, which game do you show them? P.S. My favorite moment in the Audible history is Bruce asking Stu if he smoked pot in college. I I do remember. I don't remember what the context was, but I remember that. Uh, What was the answer for the people who didn't hear that episode? Uh, I did not. Now, here's what I think should happen um, after this pandemic and we get the all clear. I thought about this after I saw that because I had forgotten about that episode. I think I think you owe it to your listeners and our audience. We should do an episode where we both smoke pot during it. Jeez, Bruce, what, are you, where, what direction is this podcast headed? <laughs> Well, no, I honestly think this is an idea that we should consider. Don't you think, I want, don't you think, do you think people are, are doing more pot or less pot while in quarantine? I guess it's harder to get it. So maybe, maybe it's, maybe people have run out by now. I don't know. I, I mean, I, look, I, I thought about this at times where it's like early on and I'm not at this point, like the first, I don't know, first week, 10 days of this was, I thought a little more, um, overwhelming just the scope of this and the reality of it is like wow what are we gonna you know our kids are gonna be home all the time and you know everything that was going on to it i was like all right i might need to have a couple of drinks at night to kind of calm down or not calm down but just kind of like relax and mellow out a little bit so i don't know i mean i'm curious i'm sure there are some people who are definitely drinking wine and and trying to stay relaxed or or doing what they can and I think it depends on how old you are and what you you know what your frame of mind is but again I'm not letting this go I really think (laughs) it would be a fun episode if you and I both smoked some weed during an episode and we're in California so it would be totally legal um I uh I'm such a square you've never smoked you've never smoked weed uh 
I have not. No, no, I'm not. Okay, that that's going to change at least for one yeah. time. Well, I have to tell you, we're going to have an editor, Stu. We're going to have an editor on. This it. is how if you go off. On, this is how square I am. As, as you were talking about, maybe having a couple of drinks, or you know, we're talking about our people smoking pot. You know, my big like escape release has been during this is that right before it started, I bought a Peloton. And that's been my... Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm not saying... I mean, you can you can do both. I'm not saying you do it at the same time. <laughs> but, you know, there's plenty of people who, uh, you know, who are workout fanatics who also may have some drinks on a weekend or something. So, I don't know. All right. What's I'm your answer to the question about the one game you would show a non-college football fan? Uh, I would say at this point and where college football is, I would say go to... Man, I would say go to go to the Iron Bowl. Oh, I took this to mean um, like a game from the past, but oh, but I thought it was just like right now. But nonetheless, my answer was going to be the 2013. I think if you, the the kick six game to me would be okay. Let's say you're uh, uh, like the equivalent of trying to show me uh, a, a hockey game that would tell me what's what the NHL is all about. I would say, watch, here's the stakes. Here's what was at stake going into this game. And everybody expected Alabama to win. Now watch how it plays out and watch how it ends. And, and look at the emotion of the, you know, as the, as the fans storm onto the field. And you remember A.J. McCarron kind of sulking off and Catherine Webb was there waiting for him. Like, that, that was college football in a nutshell, that game. Um, there's plenty of others we could think of, obviously. In fact, the... Just, and I'm just thinking, you know, fairly recently, the the Michigan Michigan State game with the drop punt snap, you know, the fact that a rivalry game could swing on that one very flukish play. Um, when I think college football, I think, you know, I'm not like here watch this, watch the Texas USC game and see all these amazing players playing at the highest level. Like that's great, but what's college football is how imperfect and wacky it is, and just the idea that any game might you might see something you've never seen before. Hey, by the way, uh, just to circle back on, we were talking about Frank Beamer and his legacy there. Uh, I did vaguely remember Bill Dooley as the coach there, and he did have a couple of nine-win seasons in the '80s. Um, but you know, so it wasn't it wasn't they were they were considerably better than what K State was. Having said that, guess how many seasons they had finishing in the top twenty-five before Frank Beamer showed up? Uh, I'm gonna say none. They had two. two, so Dooley had one of them where they finished uh, finished twentieth. He was nine and two, and they won the Peach Bowl. But then, and there's a coach I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've never heard of, but I've never heard of Frank Mosley before. Uh, he led them to an eight zero and one season in 1954, where they finished sixteenth, which is I guess is the most was the highest. The most had. amazing thing about Frank Beamer, and this gets talked about all the time, is he takes over in 1987. Here's his record, his first six, uh, seven seasons, two and nine, three and eight, six, four and one, six and five, five and six, two, eight and one. Sorry, that was the sixth season. He goes two, eight and one. Yeah. Any coach today would have been fired probably before, before the season even ended, but they stick with him. And then the next season he goes nine and three and begins a run where they go to a bowl game every season from there. There's very few programs where you can say, yeah, one person basically changed this entire program. Joe Paterno at Penn State, uh, Bill Snyder, obviously Kansas State, 
Bobby Bowden at Florida State, Steve Spurrier at Florida, Frank Beamer, and um, obviously Howard Schnellenberger at Miami are the ones that come to mind for me. By the way, uh, and the thing with Frank Beamer, he is one of those guys where I don't think I've ever heard a negative word about him from anybody in football. So um, anyway, yeah, he deserves, he deserves, he deserved mention in the discussion. And, um, you know, so I have a, a personal affinity to him too, just because basically the first story I ever did for ESPN Magazine where I was able to go on the road was to Virginia Tech to sit down on his special teams kick blocking clinics with other coaches and he and his staff were more than gracious to let me in. So I am uh, forever grateful for that. All right, so the last question is from Jordan in Canton, Ohio, who gives us a little parenthetical. Yes, I am an Ohio State fan, so I may be a little biased. Okay, with that, hey, Stu and Bruce, love reading your articles and listening to the podcast. Thank you, Jordan. As someone who is too young to really remember both games and after watching the 2006 USC-Texas game, and the 2002 Ohio State-Miami game this week. I'm wondering which game should be considered the best game of all time. Most people say Texas-USC, but that game didn't go to double overtime. Didn't have a running back strip a safety after an interception that was surely going to be returned for a touchdown. Didn't have a QB throw his sixth completion of the game on a fourth and 14, down seven in overtime, and those are just the highlights from Ohio State. So my question is, which game is the better game and why? Stu, you go first. I think he's on to something because everybody does default to Texas USC. And that game definitely had more hype, more buildup, more star power. Um, and then obviously just an all-time epic individual performance by Vince Young. But if you were to, I mean, I'm not sure I remember a lot of specific plays from that game beyond the... Um, First of all, for some reason, stuck in my brain is that bizarre Reggie Bush lateral attempt. But yeah, Brad you know, Walker. I remember the last the last part of the game very vividly. I don't remember the whole game. Whereas, like he's saying, I remember a lot more specific plays from that Miami Ohio State game. I feel like it was more tense throughout, um, and the just you know the the OT. I mean, he's right. The game goes to double OT. You have that Craig Krenzel improbable completion you have the pass interference call you have obviously the game ending stop i think in terms of which was the better football game or the more suspenseful football game it's ohio state miami if you're looking at the whole picture of what the 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 aura around usc going into that game and the weeks of debate whether they're the greatest team of all time and the fact that it was vince young against liner and bush then i say that one i thought it was to me it's Texas USC and I don't think it's that close just because I you know we were both at that at that game in Arizona and I felt like the first half of that game felt like it was a little bit of a clunker like it didn't feel like it felt a little bit like an SEC game like when people think of an SEC game as kind of uh, I don't know it just didn't just did not have to me the wattage that the that USC Texas had the whole way um, and I think maybe some of that was the star power. You had so much talent, I thought, in terms of, you know, Craig Krenzel was a really good story, but it wasn't like he was Vince Young or Matt Leinart leading that. Um, you know, you had a lot of drama that ratcheted up, I thought. I thought the ending, the, the last hour of that game was probably more compelling, but not the whole game. Like, it was just... Um, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would say that game was a better game than one of the Alabama Clemson games. 
to be honest, because I just felt like there was a lot more fireworks and drama in the Alabama-Clemson game, or you know, you could take a the Georgia-Alabama game recently. Yeah, John just chimed in with, why doesn't anyone consider the Bama-Georgia OT for best game ever? It had the best ending ever, had the most amazing last play of a, of a national championship, I think, you could you could possibly think of. But I actually would, I would agree with you, Bruce. The To me, the second uh, Clemson-Alabama national championship game that ended on the Deshaun Watson to Hunter Renfro throw is at the very least in the same breath as the two that Jordan brought up. You want to definitively say one of those three is the best? I don't know, but they were all, to me, um, the all-time classics. The only reason I downplay Bama Georgia a little bit is it was definitely a dud of a game the whole first half. That's why Tua ended up coming in. Um, we remember that game almost entirely for the ending. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, I think, and obviously, as uh, Jordan pointed out, you know, he has a special connection to it. I'm sure if you were, you know, a diehard Ohio State fan and it had been a while since they had won a, won a game of that magnitude, I think it's, you know, it's hard to look at it in that context. I mean, just objectively with Texas USC, um, I don't know. It's just like, it, to me, it was like on a whole nother level game for me compared to all the other ones we're talking about. But maybe because I was factoring in USC was going, you know, was what they were and Texas was what it was. And you felt like you had just two two great teams, you know, a slugfest like that. Maybe I'm a little bit partial to Texas. I mean, to Miami, Ohio State, because it was the first it was the first classic national title game that I ever got to cover. I was still very young. Um, Did you not? Were you not at like the the Florida State, Oklahoma game? No, I was at it, but that that wasn't a very good game. I mean, the oh, I see. My first okay. one was the Michael Vick against Florida State game. That was a good game, um, but like the the you know the whole the drama of the Miami Ohio State game. By the way, one of my most vivid memories for for the journalists listening was uh, Edwin Pope, legendary legendary Miami Herald columnist. Maybe a little bit of a homer. You know, Miami was expected to win that game and win it handily. And it just kept, you know, getting later and later in the game and they're still losing. And I remember him saying loud enough for half the press box to hear, all right, boys, now or never. You know what I remember about that? I don't know if this is from a, I thought you were going to say. So that was in the middle of the Maurice Claret drama. I remember all that. With Ohio State. And so Andy Geiger, who was the AD at Ohio State at that time, was going to be speaking to the media after a practice. And I remember we drove out to wherever it was in the desert and <laughs> there was a like a cluster. It was like a big game of Twister where everybody's intertwined around Andy Geiger trying to stick their tape recorders as close as possible to him or whatever. And it was like, you couldn't move because if you moved, you were going to knock somebody over. It was like everybody was just kind of, it was almost like you had to be separated. And at one point, and it was actually a colleague of ours now who was a guy I'd worked with when I was in college, George uh, Richards, who I think now is our, one of our hockey writers, had, I think it was the, the song Sweet Home Alabama as his ringer. And all of a sudden, it started going off in the middle of this scrum. And it was like, well, if George goes to reach his phone, he may do like a reach around for, for like the beat writer for like the... Cleveland Plain Dealer or something. It was like everybody was just kind of intertwined. There was nothing you could do but listen to that, listen to his ringtone. So, Bruce, one thing I've always noticed about you is whenever you tell a story, 
you think it's the first time you're telling that story <laughs> i'm almost well, positive you no i'm almost positive you've told that uh-huh. story in the podcast before Okay. But then it's possible well, I already Jason told Gor- the Jason Gorlewski will correct yeah. me and send in and say, yeah, I've okay, heard this story okay. three times. By the way, see if I'm right. Ask, let's try to get our own little 88% survey or whatever the 86% that Brett had from the ADs or from the, from the, from the uh, FBS ADs and see what percentage of our audience would like to hear us do an episode after the all clear where Stu smokes weed. I think that um, you're probably going to get much higher than 88%. All right, Bruce, what do you say? We get to the man, the myth, Tim Brando. All right, Stu, we are pleased to be joined by one of our favorite people, period. I was going to say in college sports, but just we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Tim Brando, thanks for joining us, Tim. (laughs) I'm not the only guest that you you announced with a disclaimer. Probably, because you're the only only guest who Stu and I uh, send texts about. After the first question, we're like, we're going to have to cut this down because we're already 10 minutes in and, we've, and, and only one of us has asked a question. <laughs> so one of the issues we have had these conversations with you and you have lobbied it and banged the drum for college football needs a czar for as long as I've known you. Um, and, you know, the way I felt about it was I don't disagree with it, but I was just like, I just didn't see it happening and I didn't see anything that would force it. What From the conversations I've had with football coaches and to some degree with athletic directors, but especially with certain football coaches, it's like, who is going to make this decision to give us an all clear? You know, yeah. it's it, yeah. you, you start to talk about, okay, you know, there are different governors are handling things much differently. The governor in California is responding differently than certainly the governor of Georgia in his comments. And it, it certainly varies and it can vary. You know, the governor in your state uh, has handled it much differently, certainly than the governor of Florida or Georgia. By the way, those are all states that are under the SEC footprint. So it gets complicated when we had Ross Bjork on this podcast. And for people who don't know, Ross is uh, Texas A&M's AD. And I had posed that question of who, who decides and he explained how complicated it is. Um, Take me through your scenario about how you think a college football czar would work in regard to this and dealing with the pandemic. Because right now, what we are seeing and the responses from football coaches is all over the map. Correct. And yeah. literally, it's all over the map, but it's really, um, you know, just kind of philosophically, it's all over the map, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, not only should there be a czar for college football, we need uh, someone with purview in college basketball as well. That is clear because Mark Emmert made a mess. I mean, a huge mess of that entire week. Now, it hasn't been discussed as as much because, you know, we shifted it to the side and got, you know, our lives became more about Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and the, the daily briefings and we can we'll deal with uh you know our toy department of sports a little bit later from a national standpoint but once things do uh, level out to some extent and we become not only we're not just talking about sports because in a speculative manner because we have none but sports does resume again i, I certainly hope s- some consideration is given to just that point bruce think about it uh, when I left, I want to kind of finish what happened on Thursday. When I got out of the uh, garden after halftime, Bill Hemmer's calling me. 
not his producers. He's calling. We've, we've been friends for over 20 years. And he says, Tim, uh, we were watching you here, and we know they just stopped. Sports stopped. It's probably stopped forever. Can you get up here? He sent a car to bring me up, and he wanted to talk about the impact of, of this cancellation. And the NCAA was still on – it was still ready to play. Remember, the conferences canceled play. The NCAA tournament was still on for a period of about four hours. During those hours, okay, it took Duke and Kansas's administrators to tell Mark Emmert, we're not playing, for the NCAA to finally call it off. I don't know how many people have thought about that, but I certainly have. I mean, for them to be more aware uh, and, and outside the bubble, so to speak, and see that we have an issue here and the NCAA has not as yet addressed this, we're going to address it for them. That actually happened. Mike Krzyzewski, going all the way back to the 90s, was talking about, and he went before the NCAA committee, uh, their big meetings. One of the reasons I think he got so sick in 95 was because he was spending way too much time trying to help college basketball through its problems, and no one in, in, in an administrative role wanted to listen to him. Uh, he's been a proponent of having a commissioner, if you will, someone within the NCAA framework that's sole responsibility is basketball. And with all due respect to Dave Gavitt's son, we're not talking about the same jobs. You know, Dan, he's, he's a wonderful guy. We're not talking about the same jobs. We're talking about somebody that has the ability to govern above the, the commissioners of the sport. And there are a lot more of them, by the way, in, in basketball than there are in football because of the numbers of teams. We're talking 350 teams. So it's needed in basketball, too. But to answer your question more specifically, I'm not saying take the rights of the commissioners away of, of uh, making their deals for television or any of the other concerns that they have. I'm talking about major issues that impact the sport, not just in their region of the country, but in totality. The total product, okay? No one is given consideration, whether it's in basketball or in football. I think it's more needed in football because at basketball, we, we do have the tournament, and the NCAA governs that cash cow, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it's the way it is. But I think they're losing power, and I think Emmert has become one of the real failures of, of leadership that we've seen in sports in, in modern history. And, and let me tell you, I liked Mark Emmert and still do like Mark Emmert as a human being. He was a wonderful president, did a great job at Washington and at LSU. But as the head of the NCAA, he has lost his grip, and it began a long time ago. This, I think, was further proof of it. But football is even in worse shape because its very premise is a consortium run by conference commissioners, only five of them. And then we have a group of five that's out there that's dependent on them. And without college football playing in some form, about half of those schools economically are going to be in a position where they may have to drop sports altogether. Someone's got to be looking out at the big picture to understand all of these things, and no one is. I mean, absolutely no one. It's like being in a, a, a car and somebody decided to stop driving and no one grabbed the wheel. There is no one at the wheel looking at the totality of, of the sport. And that's why I've been such a strong proponent of it for so very long. 
All right, I'm going to, this might be dangerous, but I'm going to, I'm going to take devil's advocate on a couple of your points, Tim. I don't usually defend Mark Emmert. I think he's done a lot of things to, to criticize, to be criticized for. But I think that week, everything was changing so rapidly I, I, to the point where at the beginning of that week, I wrote like a spring football primer and the you know 10 things to know about spring football. And the last one was, or 10 questions. And the last one was, will coronavirus disrupt spring football? So three days later, we're canceling all of sports. Um, I think that he was under a lot of pressure to see if there was any possible way to make it work because of what actually ended up happening, right? The $600 million that they were going to get from that tournament became 225 And a lot of the smaller basketball schools are now, you know, trying to figure out how to make that work. So I think uh, it's easy for us to look back in hindsight and say, what was he thinking? It was a pandemic. Uh, but I'm not sure it was entirely clear at that point how massive it was going to be in terms of all right i'll give you that i'll give you i'll give you that but how how does how do you how do you come to grips with this not getting 19 commissioners who were starting their college tournaments on that wednesday and he doesn't make a phone call to them get them on a conference call to have a consensus decision before he makes this grandiose holier than thou statement about his tournament is protected we will play but not with fans and none of them not one of them not greg sankey not Val Ackerman, not Mike Oresco, none of them knew. I agree with you on that. And in fact, yeah, I agree with you on that. And in fact, the, the, the most telling moment of the whole thing in terms of how they just didn't loop in the, the conferences was the day they did cancel the NCAA tournament and included in that announcement was that they were going to go ahead and cancel all of the spring championships as well. And Greg Sankey's on Paul Feinbaum saying, I don't know why we're doing that just completely blindsided by it. Now it turns out that was the right thing to do, but they again, it's, it's power and control here and, and misuse of power and control is my point. These are, these are all reasonably intelligent people that want what's best for college athletics. And, and I've said this many times before. Yeah. I think he's been a failed uh, president of the NCAA in recent years. He's done a lot more wrong than right. He's a PR nightmare, an absolute public relations nightmare. But I like the guy, and I think that his understanding of how, especially from a president's perspective, of how academics and athletics can coincide and actually help one another, he was on the cutting edge of that. One of the best of his craft, no doubt about it. Um, I'm not just singling him out. What I'm saying to you is this, his handling of this and where we find ourselves is yet another example of why, as Bruce mentioned, my point about having someone with authority, okay, to say, this is the way we're going to do it. You know, you look at the NFL right now, and is anybody giving them any trouble about uh, the free agency taking place or the draft, the virtual? No, no, there's no issue there. They know what direction they're going in because there's one voice. We, we need someone, and we need the egos of these people with power, okay? All of these conference commissioners to understand that just taking care of their own, their constituents is not enough. The sport's too big. The money's too great. We've got too much to lose. So I have been encouraged. And, and, and look, should there be some one organizing person or body in charge of college football? Yes, absolutely. I felt that way from the moment I almost the moment I started covering the sport. It's not going to happen in the next five months. I have been encouraged because, you know, the only good news out of this for football is they have they they have four or five months to, to figure out alternatives. And Whereas, like you've said, Tim, often 
they're all just doing whatever's best for themselves. Um, you know, we had yeah. Ross Bjork on last week yeah. and he mentioned that, you know, they're, um, the, 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 the power five commissioners are having a conference call every weekday morning about this. They're trying to coordinate it. Uh, the ADs of the SEC mm -hmm. have these conference calls. So I'm at least encouraged, and I'd be curious Bruce's thoughts on this, that it doesn't seem like, I mean, I could be wrong, this could change. It doesn't seem like we're headed to a scenario where the SEC is going to play and the Pac-12 is not, and um, it's just going to be total chaos out there. They do yeah. seem yeah. pretty set on toward realizing that because there is nobody, no one, no, no commissioner, that it's kind of up to them, the Power Five conferences, to come up with an organized plan for how they're going to handle this. I, I do think, though, there's been some rumblings, and this might be just coaches amongst coaches thinking, all right, these guys are going to do whatever they can to try to get an edge, and we're taking this, quote-unquote, more seriously. They're, you know, like, I think there was there was an element, and maybe it was early on, and maybe it's been, maybe it's been changed as things have been pushed back further and further, but I know probably, like, it's hard to even keep track of days. It may have been 10 days ago. It may have been six days ago where there was some concern. I remember about like, oh, this, I, I know somebody at this school, they said they're getting ready to go back to at such and such date, which seemed very premature. And I think there's a lot of this that has, um, I think it's, it's a, maybe it's a little paranoia. Maybe it's just knowing how people normally operate on kind of bending the rules and trying to get an edge. And so I think that's added to this, um, you know, and I think something else that's kind of added to it is just, you know, it were a couple of days after Mike Gundy's comments. And I think there is a lot of this, or at least some of it, that has, has gotten very politicized. And so I think that has added to the confusion of this. No, no, no doubt about it, Bruce. You really hit on it. Um, Bob Bowlesby, unfortunately, doesn't have the power to keep Mike Gundy from saying what he said. Uh, and same would be true, I think, um, with Mike Leach, who got his first lesson uh, in life in the South, even though Starkville is... Uh, I think technically, well, Tim, it was his second point. lesson he's gotten since he's been yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe his second lesson. But it's, in, in the census situation for Starkville would be, uh, would be similar to, to Pullman, but but the lifestyle is completely different. And um, the microscope is a heck of a lot different in the SEC than it is the Pac-12. So he got a lesson in that too. But uh, by example, if we had a, a commissioner uh, or czar, if you want to call it that, so we can have a different title, there could have been a memo sent out to every commissioner to absolutely gag order all of the coaches during this because unless you're a scientist, you don't know anything. So we don't need to hear from you. Um, that could have easily been accomplished with one voice. We don't have that. That's an interesting point, Tim. Uh, I actually hadn't thought of that as that, but I mean, that's that's that that you handle that internally, just as a coach would tell you he's handling a player internally. Uh, we're not in the media privy to why this player is a game time decision. We'll handle that internally. We do the same thing with coaches and uh, the commissioners for whatever reason uh, have not done that and. Uh, a czar could handle that for them. That's that's another classic example. But uh, to the point, oh, excuse me, fellas, I should have had my ringer off. That's Bruno Mars. My, my you haven't changed that still, Tim. That was like oh, no, I still have Bruno Mars. You like that? Oh my god! Uh, like Uptown Funk. 
Yeah, I remember yeah. I, we would be in the car. This was like, man, Barry Odom's first game at Missouri. Yeah. And I remember hearing that Barry Odom's come and gone at Missouri, and you haven't changed your ringtone. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. But uh, the way it's been politicized is really unfortunate, but it's, it's, it's also, I think, uh, understandable given the times that we're in. Uh, and the, the elephant in the room here, I think, in some terms, is media perception of what is said at any time by anyone that's in a high-profile position, whether it's a head coach, whether it's a, a commentator, as was the case with Kirk Herbstreet. Uh, I, I don't for one minute think that Kirk gave a lot of thought to how what he was saying was going to resonate to the extent that it did. I, I frankly believe he was thinking as a father that night and he's got two boys that are playing ball at the division one level. And so he's just thinking out loud uh, on a radio interview and man, the next day <laughs> it was uh, the reaction to it and the pushback that he got was incredible. And listen, I, ha I have no problem with uh, my colleagues and friends that are still doing sports radio, whether it's, um, you know, uh, uh, Colin Coward uh, on Fox or Paul Feinbaum on, on, on ESPN talking to newsmakers that are in sports and one of those guys make news. That's, that's, that's the job they have is to talk to these people. Jack Swarbrick said one thing and uh, Mike Gundy said another. Okay. I get that. But what happens with these shows, they're speculative in nature always. I mean, they're speculative when we're playing football. I'm, I'm out there telling you, who I believe is going to be uh, the fourth team in the, the college football playoff in mid-October, you know. So we live in a speculative world. But you can't do that with a story like this. This isn't the toy department of life we're discussing. This is a, an international pandemic. So you've got to be a lot more guarded with anything that you say. And people say, well, is, your half, is your glass half full or half empty? And I'm like, mine's just where it needs to be. Uh, I don't know if we're going to play, and I'm not going to speculate whether we play or when we play, uh, because I'm not a doctor. I've never been asked to play one on TV, but but do I understand and know that there's plans being made by those that have to be in control of that? Absolutely. I know that that's going on, but but now's not the time for doom and gloom, but it's not. But it's also not the time to be tone deaf, and that's what we're getting. We're getting doom and gloom, and we're getting tone deafness from different newsmakers in and around college football. Uh, and all of that, I think, could be tempered if we had one voice. Somebody telling people, listen, it's not in our best interest to go there right now, so let's not. Let's allow the calendar and the science to do what's necessary, and then we'll move forward. Yeah, guys, the most disappointing part of this to me has been these college football coaches are – in many cases, the most influential figures in their state, even more so than the governor. And they have the ability to to make a difference in, in helping people take this as seriously as they need to with social distancing and staying at home. And some coaches have, you know, Ed Ogeron was, had a, did one of those PSAs, you know, I think the first one that I remember. And Nick Saban's done one and Kirk Ferentz has done one and, and whatnot. But then you've got Dabo Swinney, who, you know, one of the most recognizable coaches in the whole country, saying, oh, yeah, we, my family and I took a private plane to Florida during all this, and we're thinking about doing it again for Easter. And you got Mike Gundy, 
who, by the way, that, was on, that wasn't on a TV show. That was on a teleconference with his beat writers, and they didn't even ask him the question. He opened with a 20-minute rant about how we need to get these players back on campus. They're, they're young. They could fight off the virus. We need to pump money through the state of Oklahoma. And you're just you're reading that, and you're going, my gosh, I can't believe a guy who makes $5 million a year is, uh, ha- has tremendous influence over that entire fan base and big part of that state. Uh, is, is saying such uninformed things and setting a terrible example uh, for for everybody else. If you want football this fall, and this is what I would be saying if I was every football coach, I'd say, if you guys want football this fall, stay home now so we can get it contained. Those guys not setting that message. I'm a big Mike Gundy fan, and he's. I hear people saying he's a kook, and, this, and he's. Listen, Mike Gundy is one of the really intelligent guys uh, in the coaching profession. Yeah, he's been through a lot, and there are times when. Uh, he'll overstep his bounds. But I think a lot of times, uh, Stu, in cases such as these, whether it's someone that's measured like Saban but has an agenda or it's someone like Mike who's not nearly as measured, uh, a lot of times they live in this insular world and they believe that they can say whatever they wish and not have repercussions. And that's simply not the case. And again, I go back to leadership, okay? These guys are coaches. They're great coaches, and they lead their men, but they don't lead the sport. And the moment the sport decides that, well, wait a minute, these are the guys that are setting the – that they are in charge of our – no, 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 no. We don't need them in governance. We need them coaching the young men, but we don't – it's the guys in the suits and the guys that are impacting those coaches, the people with, with whistles around their necks, that need to be doing a better job. Uh, fans don't ever think about that. You know, you talk about the problems at uh, an institution in question. You know, the coach at USC is horrible. We, we need to get rid of him. Really? How about all the ADs you hired? How about the, 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 the president of the institution? How about those that have impacted the, the reason why you're in this situation? No one wants to think about the people that they don't see uh, on the field. They just think of the coaches. And I, I understand that. but. Until those guys begin to lead properly, we're going to have these situations where um, agendas, and some of them, as you mentioned, Bruce, are political agendas set by coaches who decide that, you know what, I'm, I'm making five or seven million. I can say whatever the hell I want. Yeah, Tim, one of the things that I think you, know, you guys both touched on, and I'll use the example with, with LSU and Ed Ogeron, is he has a really close relationship to the governor, and the governor... You know, I think the governor realized the influence that Ed had, so he tapped into him early. And then LSU, I think, has been very proactive in using him. I mean, he did something with the team doctor this week again, and I think they've been they've kind of leveraged his platform to say, "Hey, we can reach people this way." When it comes to Dabo, um, like I know a lot of my colleagues and friends in the media, you know, he is he has taken a lot of blowback for his comments. I think there was two things there. Like one, when he's saying, you know, there's zero doubt in my mind we're going to play. You know, I honestly don't have a, pro- a problem with him saying that. That's his his viewpoint on it. He is very optimistic, and I hope he's right. The part where I was like, eh, I kind of, I can get the criticism is, in that case, he is the most influential guy in the state, person in the state of South Carolina. People are going to take their cues from him. And just so it was like, well... 
somebody could say, well, if Dabo is going on a vacation or Dabo is getting, well, he has his personal plane. Well, it's like, if he is going to do something that quote unquote, you know, seems like it's, you know, living life as, as normal, I think there's going to be some other people who are going to take their cues and say, okay, it's probably not as bad as some of these people are tweeting out. So that's where I can get the accountability. The Gundy stuff to me is completely, you know, honestly, it was off the rails at that point. And as, you know, as honestly, I viewed it as much differently than what Dabo said. And again, I think I, you know, like college football coaches are all over the map on this. I mean, and I think the part where I, I, I do think they can they can be really beneficial is when they're the leaders of the state or maybe the medical community is saying, hey, you you know, look, I, I think when Steph Curry has or even the Pardon My Take podcast have Anthony Fauci on, they know they can reach a different audience. And I think that's one thing that that John Bell Edwards is the governor of Louisiana of your state, Tim has been very wise in doing and and we'll see how how you know many other states do it because this problem you know as much as we want to move back to you know can't wait to get back on the field um it's not going away anytime soon and the thing that you know like i think a lot of people have made this politicized i see sometimes people comment back they're like well that's just what you want you know whatever and i'm like Nobody wants to like, I mean, nobody loves college football more than me. I cannot wait till we get back to that sense of normal. But I think at that point, it's just like, okay, you know, we're trying to be responsible at the same point too. Absolutely. You'll be happy to know that uh, this, this uh, compassionate conservative voted for a democratic governor in Louisiana. And I'm very happy to say that. <laughs> you're not getting happy. me. You're not baiting me into bringing up politics, Tim. No, but I'm, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm only pointing it out because good leaders lead. Yeah. And I just felt like he was a really good leader. Um, and there, there are obvious differences uh, that I have with him on certain policies, but, but it comes back down to just that it's, it's, it is leadership. And that's what you notice in times like these is, you know, who is and who isn't. And I think a lot of times, and I've, I've been, you guys know this more than I think anyone, I'm more critical of my own craft than I am anybody else's. Uh, I'll also applaud those that I think are doing a wonderful job. Uh, I read a piece uh, at another website just the other day about uh, my friend Feinbaum and the direction that Paul's decided to go in with his show. And it's completely different than a lot of the other shows that are out there on a daily basis. You know, you got to know who you are and you got to know how you want to attack being in the public eye during a pandemic and handling this situation. I, for one, I'm really glad that my show no longer exists. I could not imagine what it has, what you have to do to, to do three hours, much less four on a daily basis. But, but I do think that no matter what we do in our profession, the reaction we are going to get from uh, the fan base is not going to be any different than uh, a political commentator would be. It's going to be, well, he's biased for this or he's biased for that. But, um, as I mentioned, if you're watching, I'm, I'm home uh, watching just like you are some of these shows, and I turn them off really quickly. Uh, I, can't, I can't bear to watch nighttime cable news anymore of any kind. I turn on Netflix. I turn on Hulu. I, I never watch Homeland. I'm watching it now. I watched Ozark. I even watched Tiger King, which I that was a complete waste of time. But I watched all those things because I just couldn't bear to watch the – 
incredible back and forth. You would have thought after 9-1-1, everyone, I think in the media, to some extent, settled down and understood that, you know what, we need to have a little more compassion for one another. And I think that in, I see that when I'm out uh, walking where I live or I see it occasionally if I happen to go. I'm not going now, but about a week ago, I went to the grocery store and people kept their distance and were mindful but also very courteous. And so you see that. I think people, friends of mine in New York, are saying the same things. You don't see that in the media, uh, especially the news media in cable television at night. It's as bad as it's ever been. I think in sports, we have to look at that and say, that's not the direction we need to go. You know, we need to come together, understand what we're dealing with, and try to be uh, as down the middle as we could possibly be and not say that when someone suggests this or that, that they must be a liberal or they must be a conservative. Um, we just can't do that anymore. Uh, not, so, was, not with something this important. And um, what's about to happen between now and early June for the future, not just of college football, but of all of intercollegiate athletics, is extremely important because it's not going to be the same. The new normal will not be what we're accustomed to to the normal being. Tim, you never let us down as a podcast guest. Lots lots for people to digest from this interview. Thank you, fellas. Always good. Especially lots for our editor, John Hayes, to digest. <laughs> <laughs> John, John, John knows all too well how much he wanted to edit me live. Now, he, he's, this is actually easier for him, though, I know. All right, I'm getting the hook, Tim, because every time I, I speak to you, I get, I get a text from one of these jerks saying, stop talking to Tim. <laughs> Jonathan, we'll stop talking now. It wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> oh, great. Process of elimination. Well done, John. For whatever it's worth, I'm going to tell you what he said. Bruce, for the love of God, stop teeing him up. <laughs> Tim, we love you, but we do have to cut to commercial. All right. Take care, man. Thanks, Tim. Be good. Bye-bye. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40 percent off your subscription to the athletic we'll talk about it for years